Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue our series, God's Man with Dr. Neufeld, with a message entitled, Embarking on a Life of Purpose. So let's join him now. A number of years ago, while doing a retreat for men, I said the following, men are designed to concentrate on long-term goals. Men who have no long-term goals often turn to alcohol, sex, drugs, mindless pursuits, and entertainment. Men who do not give or accept leadership that calls them to a higher, virtuous, meaningful, and long-term purpose are often violent men. You know, I still believe that. But I also know that having an overarching purpose for your life is not necessarily praiseworthy. I remember some years ago having a conversation with a man who was on vacation visiting Canada from another country. In order just to make small talk, I asked him what he was planning to see and do, and he told me that one of his goals in life was to sleep with a woman in as many countries in the world as possible. It was his long-term goal in life. So while it is true that he was giving himself to some great purpose, at least in his mind, his masculinity was broken and he was becoming less than a man. You know, other men have given themselves to becoming famous or becoming rich or writing a book for the purpose of leaving some kind of a mark or a name for themselves that outlasts their time. In each case, they are driven by something deep in their soul, but what is there is self-focused and twisted and filled with anxiety. See, there's no virtue in acting in a masculine fashion. Nothing praiseworthy should be heaped upon the man who has overcome all obstacles and defeated all his foes. The ruin and wreckage that men have done has caused the earth to stagger under the weight of their sin. Until a man has encountered the God who made him, all expressions of masculinity lead to futility at best and harm if left unchecked. But godly manhood is for a man to be fully under the lordship of Jesus. It allows for the expression of accomplishment, not for the sake of self, but for the glory of the God who has made him. A godly man will, for the sake of Christ, gladly abandon every earthly comfort, take up his cross, and follow his Lord unto death. Such a man was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who resisted Hitler and called for a confessing church in Nazi Germany and paid for it with his life. Such a man was Athanasius, who challenged the heretical views espoused by Arius and argued for the full deity and humanity of Christ and defended the doctrine of the Trinity and suffered false accusation from no less than the emperor Constantine himself and was charged with treason and banished from the land. Such a man was William Wilberforce, who gave up the opportunity to become the prime minister of England for the sake of fighting against slavery for the glory of God. Such a man was William Carey, considered by many to be the father of modern missions, who moved from his native England and spent his life in India, and in 28 years, he and his team translated the Bible into Bengali, Oriya, Marathi, if I'm saying it right, I don't know, Hindi, Assamese, and Sanskrit, and parts of 209 other languages and dialects. And this from a man who said that his top speed was, well, he said he was just a plodder. Show a man of God a vision of what God wants him to be, and he will fight his way to the goal or die on the battlefield trying. It is this call to godly manhood that I'm speaking about during this week. 
But if you offer man little vision, no battlefields to conquer, nothing which requires his very life, and I tell you, don't be surprised if you find him wandering away in disinterest. I'm using Nehemiah as a guide for this principle. In chapter 1, we have him discovering the need. The wall around Jerusalem was broken down. And in chapters 2 and 3, Nehemiah went from vision to the first steps of accomplishment. I'm beginning with Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Now the context is important. As the cupbearer, Nehemiah is charged with the important task of ensuring the king's security. He was supposed to know any courtyard intrigue, any threats against his king. And as such, he is also the king's counselor and advisor. Secondly, court etiquette demanded that if a man is to attend to the king, he must not be distracted by personal concerns. These had to be put aside so that the king would know that his servants were giving their full attention both to his welfare and that of the kingdom. But clearly, Nehemiah was distracted. He's overwhelmed with the welfare of the people of God in Jerusalem. And when the king noticed, Nehemiah knew that such a slip-up could cost him his life. His fear is genuine. So what to do? Now, he could deny it and claim he's only concerned for the king, but he recognized if there was ever a moment to act on his vision, to do something for the people of God in Jerusalem, this moment might never return. He must overcome his fear and seize the opportunity that might never come his way again. So let's keep reading verses 3 to 5. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So here it was. You know, one can dream and envision a calling in life forever and never accomplish anything. The world is full of dreamers who never have the courage to take the first step. Nehemiah was fully aware of the potential consequences of what he had just said. But there comes a moment in the heart of the man of God in which a great risk must be undertaken. Many is the man who chooses safety and security over a divine calling. I can't tell you how often I've spoken with men who've told me of a moment in which they sensed that there was something that God wanted them to do, but all they saw was risk, and they let that divine moment pass them by. They were unlike Paul, who in 2 Corinthians 6, 5 to 6, describes everything from hardships to sleepless nights and the weapons of righteousness both in his right hand and in his left. You know, for the sake of fulfilling his calling, Paul gladly embraced the call to take up his cross and follow Christ. See, I notice in Nehemiah's case, just before he told his king what was on his heart, he hesitates just that moment, and then he prays. That's important because unless God is in this, he will fail. He is now in this place where if God is not there, well, you know how it goes. And then in an act of boldness, sensing God is in this, he unapologetically asks the king straight out, send me to Jerusalem. Would that have meant that he had a job when he came back? Well, he doesn't ask. Would that mean that the king would provide him with some resources? He doesn't ask either. 
He doesn't have to sew up all the details, but he does have to, at some point in time, push out from the dock and dip his paddle in the water. And by the way, it is this kind of thinking that makes prayer ever so meaningful. Rather than just praying because we have to pray, godly men with a vision end up praying because if the great God of heaven were not aiding us, it would be disaster. Men, when you pray out of desperation, you will pray as you have never prayed before. Let's continue to read verses 6 to 8. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and let a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. See, I notice Nehemiah was completely prepared. Should the king grant him his request, he knew how long he would be gone and what resources he needed from the royal throne. After all, his career as the king's cupbearer could now be used to good advantage. You know, man, I have learned something about the skill set that God has entrusted so many of you with. Have you noticed that God never wastes the skills and places of influence that he in his sovereignty has given you? Only a man who was a trusted advisor to the king could have done what Nehemiah did. Of course, we don't have the same influence that is not all of us. But if we're prepared to realize that which God has given us, it's amazing. Carpenters, medical doctors, accountants, engineers, politicians, I mean, the list of skills goes on and on. Once we realize that God has been directing our skills and abilities, and when we set out to work them for the kingdom, the results wonderfully serve the greater purpose, a greater purpose than we had ever imagined. In the words of Dr. Neufeld, a godly man will, for the sake of Christ, gladly abandon every earthly comfort, take up his cross, and follow his Lord unto death. What a great challenge to consider for every man of God. And we'll continue to consider Nehemiah's response to that calling next. Just a brief reminder that this month we've been given a generous match pledge of $100,000. That means every dollar you give in June toward the fiscal year end will be matched by another dollar. Now, that's a great return on your investment. The accumulated gifts of $100,000 will become $200,000 to advance the Bible teaching ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. To give your gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. Now, let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Our Lord and Savior was resisted, mocked, scandalized, persecuted. You know, it's unlikely that his followers should be treated otherwise. Nehemiah was to find out that his calling and his carrying out his divine assignment would not come easily. Paul spoke of constant dangers and the people who opposed him. Nehemiah had the same. I'm reading Nehemiah 2, 9-10. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. 
And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. You know, it's clear that the king had decided to give Nehemiah a royal escort on his way to Jerusalem, and he must have looked quite impressive. He comes with official letters, and he comes with authority, and instantly two local authorities, Sanballat, who would have been the governor over Samaria and Tobiah, a member of a people group who were historic enemies of the Jews, took note and instantly took a disliking to Nehemiah. He has no sooner arrived, and already he has a very strong and committed enemy. And in this, we see that no work that God has given us ever gets accomplished without a fight. Satan resists the work of God every step of the way. He will fight and use envy and slander and intrigue. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Nehemiah has come to rebuild Jerusalem, and he has come because of the reports he has heard. But before he acts, he decides he must assess the situation. Let's continue to read verses 11 to 13. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Now, if you're looking for an example of wise leadership, it's hard to find a better example than this. We've already seen that before Nehemiah spoke to the king about his vision regarding Jerusalem, he was thoroughly prepared. He knew how much time he needed. He knew what resources he needed. He was prepared for any question he might be asked. I mean, how embarrassing it would have been to have the king ask him questions and he didn't know the answer. And here he is in Jerusalem and we see him doing the same thing. Long before he gets the leadership of Jerusalem together, and long before he shares his vision, he is taking a night tour of the walls. He is doing it at night because there are few people around to ask him questions. If a leader is going to ask people to follow, a good leader has done his research, his his homework. He knows the condition of the valley gate, the dung gate, the dragon spring, the fountain gate, and the king's pool. He knows which gates are so broken down that no animal can pass by. Indeed, we notice that Nehemiah calls no meeting discussing the problems until he himself is thoroughly familiar with the situation, as thoroughly familiar as he can be. And when the text mentions that at one point Nehemiah had to dismount because his animal could find no way forward, we can only imagine the situation. He is most likely then on the eastern side of the city where the the Babylonians would have caused a great deal of damage. No doubt there were no northern walls there at all. They would have been utterly destroyed. And then armed with a full understanding of what the situation looks like, he then calls a meeting. I'm now reading verses 17 and 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let's build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us arise and build, so they strengthened their hands for the good work. I notice that the text doesn't tell us how Nehemiah called a meeting. He may have enlisted the help of Ezra at this point. That seems likely. But however it came about, Nehemiah calls a meeting in which he is completely ready for his presentation. I noticed that the words he chose were designed for their effect. 
In verse 17, he tells not only of his plans to rebuild the walls, he tells of the result that this will have. We will no longer suffer derision, he says. Other translations have him say, we will no longer suffer disgrace. He has come not just to bring safety, but rather to remove shame, to bring a sense of dignity back to the people who have been living there. And what he said spoke to the hearts of the people. The plain fact of the matter was that the Jews who had come back to the promised land were suffering humiliation from their enemies, and every day the people of God were were hanging their heads in shame. And now a leader had shown up, a man who advised the king of Persia, but was one of their own. And he promised to bring their dignity back, and, and they listened. But rather than just promising to restore them, he tells them how he's going to do that. He has an accurate understanding of the nature of the problem, and he knows exactly how to arrange the task. Chapter 3 is a fascinating chapter in which we have the exact description of how the work was organized. We're told that the high priest, along with the other priests, uh, built up the sheep gate, and who it was that built up the fish gate, and and the gate of Yeshanah, and who was assigned to the valley gate, and, and so forth. Indeed, everyone seems to have received an assignment. Indeed, the work is described right down to the installing of roofs and, and doors and bolts and bars. And there's something about visionary leadership that also knows that in order to fulfill a vision, a clear path has to be found to go forward. A vision is not fulfilled unless there is both leadership and people who are willing to follow that leadership. And Nehemiah, in wisdom, put his finger on what was the greatest problem. It's not that the people of Israel felt vulnerable, it's that they felt humiliated. And this guy had promised not only to cure the problem, he knew exactly how to solve that problem and what each person was required to do in order to accomplish it. But I've left out something in chapter 2, verse 19. There it said, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? You know, in the future, these men would make the case that, that building a wall around Jerusalem was the first step in treason against the Persian Empire, and they would look for ways to send the alarm back to the city of Susa. Now, this was an extremely serious charge. Indeed, this kind of a charge worked so well before. All you have to do is, is go back to the book of Ezra, chapter 4, verses 12 to 13, and there we find that a letter was sent to the king of Persia charging that any rebuilding of Jerusalem will become a threat to Persia and that Jerusalem has been a very rebellious city in the past. And as a result of that letter, notice was sent from Persia that all work would have to stop immediately. And now these men are saying, we have the power to stop you again and more. You will be charged with treason. And as we hear this charge, we have to come to a conclusion. Either Israel was going to emerge from living with perpetual disgrace, or they were not. The time had come to choose between vision and courage, or peace and cowardice. The time had come for a man of God to step up. You know, I can almost imagine in the meeting in which Nehemiah is outlining how he would restore the dignity to a dispirited people. Hope would have been felt until at that very meeting, the enemies of the Jews said, we have the power to stop you. We've done it in the past and we're going to do it again and we're going to intimidate you. This will come to nothing and you will be charged with treason. 
And in response, Nehemiah replies, and I'm reading this beautiful verse, verse 20. The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. You know what that is? That's faith talking. That's an attitude that arose out of Nehemiah's prayer life and his study of the word of God. This word comes from a man who knows that God has called him to a task. And once he believes that divine providence has brought him to this task, he also believes that divine providence will lead him through. The God of heaven will make us prosper, he says. This is about something far greater than myself and my abilities. Look to God. There's something that happens in a man's heart when he believes that he's about the master's business. And when he believes that the work he undertakes is from God. For when a man is being propelled forward by a firm conviction that God is in this, he begins from this conviction to walk in such a way as to live by faith and to inspire others to do the same. Courage is infectious. That's what purpose from God does to a man. It shapes his character. He begins to rely on God, and people who look to him say, that truly is a man after God's own heart. John, thanks for today's message, but a question I want to ask you. Do our regrets hold us back? And You know, we fail to respond to God's direction in our life, so we just stop listening. We can become imprisoned by our regret. How do you think God would have us respond to that? You know, Ben, when you ask that question, I, I just had a flash of a memory of having a conversation with an elderly gentleman who told me that when he was young, he felt the call to become a pastor, and he said no. And he said, um, I have spent the rest of my life feeling I missed God's call. And, uh, you know, he was frozen at that one moment in time. And, and I can't think of anything so tragic as that. Uh, I want to say to every man that might feel that you've missed God's call, can I quote to you from Romans 8:28? God uses all things, even your failures and your fears, for his own long-term purposes and your eternal good. Your failures are not an impediment under the grace of Christ to allow you to pick up a call that you hear from him today. God doesn't put you on the shelf. I mean, you can hear a call and answer it today. So I want to encourage men, uh, don't be afraid to embrace a calling that you might have today. Uh, Repentance, getting right with God, all those things are important, but move forward. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. The purpose of the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada is to declare the Word of God openly and accurately and to make it available to as many who would choose to hear. To do this, we not only embrace the medium of radio and have done so for more than five decades, but we use our podcast, audio mail, mobile applications, and website to make our daily program available and all of our Bible teaching series available anytime at your convenience. And these mediums allow us to break down any barriers of cost, offering all of our audio Bible teaching resources free on all these electronic formats. But this month, we also want to make the series God's Man available on CD free for the asking. 
All you need to do is call us at 1-800-663-2425 or email us at info at backtothebible.ca. And can I thank those who support this ministry through your gracious gifts? Your generosity makes all of these resources available. So to order your God's Man series on CD for free or to make a donation today, call us at 1-800-663-2425.